Good morning, Woodland Hills. I want to tell you, I love to worship with you guys. I, I just, I, I just, I got so blessed. I, I that break my heart for what breaks yours. I just, ah, sometimes the spirit just zaps you, doesn't he? My challenge is that after I get zapped, I got to get up and speak. So hopefully somewhat coherently. So there's, there's my challenge. Um, so I'm Greg, a teaching pastor here, and welcome to all you who are visiting for the first time and out-of-towners and stuff like that. Um, and hello, listeners, we love you. We're glad that you're tuned in with us. Uh, so we're starting a new series here uh, called Turning Over Tables, kind of based on the Jesus cleansing of the temple that we'll be getting into a little bit later on. And here, I'll give a little background to this series, uh, just to kind of set it up. So throughout the 90s and the first part of this century, um, we just found the Spirit drawing us in a certain direction, we got clearer and clearer and clearer about just how important, how central loving enemies and nonviolence is to the kingdom of God, how, how central it is to Jesus' revelation of God's character and to the, the, the kingdom ethic that he, he gives to us. We just came to see how central that was. So it's become a, 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 a real centerpiece for us. I think it's, for reasons I'll get into here in a moment, really a, a, a centerpiece of, of, of the gospel. And it's kind of distinctive because, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, a lot of churches don't teach that. Um, in fact, most churches since the 4th century haven't taught that, that we're to have an unconditional love towards all people at all times, in all situations, no if and buts, maybes, exception clauses, or anything. Uh, and that we're to refrain from violence. Um, we're to follow the example of Jesus, who could have called legions of angels, uh, but didn't. Uh, to, to fight for him. Instead, he gave his life for his enemies at the hands of his enemies. We're called to, to live that lifestyle. Um, and it, it's, not widely, it's not a widely shared belief. In fact, actually, uh, in America, where we tend to have a, a love affair with violence, this is not a particularly popular message. Um, but it, it's one that, that, that we feel really strongly uh, about. Now, the, the, the folks who uh, hold to what's usually called the just war theory, that, that war is, violence is sometimes justified. Yeah, we should try to you know, resolve things violence-free, but sometimes it's inevitable, sometimes you have to do it. Uh, that's called just war thinking. And the folks who embrace that, as most have since the fourth century, uh, justify it in two ways. They go to the Bible, and on one hand, they'll appeal to the Old Testament violent portraits of God, the portraits of God commanding violence or engaging in violence. And I, I spoke about that several months ago. Sorry, several months ago. Um, if you weren't here, I encourage you to check out that series. And most of you know that I just came out with a book on that topic, uh, ways of interpreting those passages through the lens of the cross that show that they bear witness not to a violent God, but to the God, self-sacrificial God who's re revealed on Calvary. And that's called Crucifixion of the Warrior God. But it's a fairly academic book. It's about 1,500 pages. A lot of folks aren't up to that. So uh, if you're a non-academic, we have a popular version of that that will be coming out in about two weeks, uh, in August, middle of August. And so that's called cr uh, Cross Vision. And so, yeah, you want to yeah, get that. Um, and also, I just want to say this. We're be, we'll be having a conference here called Cross Vision. It's put on by Renew, my ministry outside of Woodland Hills Church, R-E-K-N-E-W, to rethink everything you thought you knew. And... Um, That'll be hosted here at Woodland Hills Church on September 21st through the 23rd. Uh, Rachel Holland Evans will be joining us, Bruxy Cavi, Dennis Edwards, and others. Uh, and we'll be looking at not just a cross-centered interpretation of the Bible, but looking at the difference that the cross makes uh, to our understanding of 
social ethics, to our understanding of, of, of justice, uh, to how we, we teach our children the Bible and things of that sort. So there'll be a lot of seminars and things like that uh, at, at this conference. Plus, we're going to have a party on Thursday night and on Friday night. Trip uh, uh, Fuller will, will be here with, with his, it's called Homebrew Christianity, and he, he leads a panel discussion that's kind of funny, and me and Rachel and others will be on that. And then on Friday night, uh, NDY, that famous rock band that I play in, uh, that'll be uh, playing at O'Gare. So we're going to have just a lot of fun. So if it's possible to make that, I would encourage you to make that. So they've appealed to the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. And interpreting those literally became very important because they, they, that's, that was the basis on which they justified their use of violence. But they also tried to find it in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, beginning of the 4th century, theologians began to comb through the teachings of Jesus and the actions of Jesus and look for things that possibly condone the use of violence. Um, and so this series is going to be looking at those things in the New Testament that have been used to justify the use of violence. We're going to be looking at the ma main passages that have always been appealed to. The, uh, this morning, I'll take a look at uh, Jesus cleansing the temple, and then I'm going to look at the episode, the teaching where he tells his disciples to go out and buy swords. So those, but before I get to that, I want to first, just for those who are kind of new to the church, briefly kind of set up kind of a foundation of why we think God is nonviolent and calls us to be nonviolent in the first place. And why we think this is so important. Um, and so let's, let's look at Matthew 5. One path. I have about 100 pages of this uh, on this in, in Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I'm going to reduce it down to one passage and five minutes here this morning. But just to give you a snippet. So Jesus says this. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Interesting teaching. Okay, several things that we should note about that. Number one, notice that Jesus does not qualify this teaching at all. There's no hint of a qualification here. Love your enemies, full stop. Love your enemies. It doesn't say love your enemies, except for those real nasty kind. Love those enemies, except when it makes sense to instead kill them. Uh, lo love your enemies, except when they're threatening your nation. He doesn't qualify it at all. In fact, when he says enemies, everything that, in, in a first century Jewish Palestinian context, the first thing people are going to be thinking of are the Romans. And the Romans are the worst kind of enemies. They reign by terror. They, they, they were unjust. They were oppressive. Uh, most Jews loathe the Romans the way we would loathe Al-Qaeda or ISIS if they were ruling us. And, and so when Jesus says, love your enemies, if it includes Roman enemies, I, I, I submit to you that it includes all enemies, uh, the real nasty kind of enemies. There's no qualification here at all. A, a, at all. So then, secondly, look, look at this. Jesus says, love your enemies, without qualification, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I had never noticed this until probably 1998 or so. Jesus here is making this unconditional love towards others, the precondition for being considered a child of your Father in heaven. That makes this kind of important, you think? I mean, this is so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And the reason that this is the precondition for being considered a child of your Father in heaven is because this is how the Father loves. You'll know, you, you, you know that you're a child of someone because there's kind of a resemblance there, right? Uh, and here's how we're supposed to resemble our Father. The Father loves indiscriminately. The Father loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls. 
the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get wet, and the sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to warm up. They they just do what they do. So also, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is love, and so he doesn't pick and choose who he's going to love. He just loves. This is what God does. And we manifest that we are his children, uh, that we're born from him when we love like that, when we resemble him in our love. And so it's the defining mark, the distinguishing mark of a child of God. Um, and it's, uh, we reflect his character, the character that he most clearly demonstrated uh, on Calvary when we can love like that. That means that for us, folks, for Jesus' follower, there can be no more an off button on love for us than there is for God. There's no off button, which means we, we never have to ask the question, hmm, should I love this person? Yeah, let's see. Uh, should I, uh, do you think it's God's will that I love this person? You don't need to pray that prayer. Never pray that prayer. The answer is yes. <laughs> he, 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 don't pray about things that he's already told you. Or, uh, yes, if it's a person, you're supposed to love them. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, uh, you know, whether they're a friend or a foe or, or, or nice to you or mean to you. Our call is to love them. There's no off button. We never have to wonder, you know, is this someone I'm supposed to love? We never have to wonder. Um, but what about but what about situations where you know someone's going to hurt me? What about this? What about that? You guys wonder about a what about? A what about presupposes that there's exceptions and there's no exceptions, so there's no what about. Just but what about? No. What? But what about? No. You don't have to. Add, you don't have to go there. We ought to love all people at all times in all situations, though if and buts or maybe because that's the way the Father loves. Which also, by the way, shows that there can't be an exception. Jesus doesn't base this teaching on the merits of the person in front of you, on the worthiness of the person in front of you. The teaching is based on God's character. Here's why you love like that. It's got nothing to do with the people around you or who's ruling you or who's mean to you or who's nice to you. It has everything to do with the character of the Father. And the Father loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls unconditionally, indiscriminately. So we are to love like the rain falls and like the sun shines indiscriminately and unconditionally. And this shows that we're the children of our, of our Father. Um, no, see, here's the thing. Conversely, if we don't love like that, then we're not manifesting that we're children of the Father. If we, if we engage in violence when it makes sense to us, or fallen common sense to do that, when we feel justified... Well, then we reflect the same character that everyone's reflected throughout the history of the world because this is what people have been doing from the beginning. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to get along as much as possible and refrain from violence as much as possible, but when I feel justified, well, then I'll resort to it. Well, that's what everyone does, and so we're not manifesting anything distinct. And Jesus, he gets at this in the next verses that follow the ones that we read earlier. He says this starting in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Which I just noticed this week, that puts a real big importance on greeting people that you don't know, going out of your way to greet strangers. Um, I'll be preaching on that this fall, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, this is grip me. So where am I here? Uh, oh yeah, uh, don't even the pagans or the Gentiles do the same. I like I lost for a second, all right? Just cover some slide. Uh, <laughs> Be perfect, teleos, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the thing. Jesus is aware that this is going to violate our fallen common sense, which is predicated on self-survival. Jesus is aware that this is a radical teaching he's giving here, which is precisely why it's the distinguishing mark of a child of God. It sets you apart from the way other people respond to enemies and the way other people resort to violence. See, everybody 
Everybody and their grandmother throughout history have, have loved those that, that love them and they'll love those that benefit them. And everyone has hated and has fought and resisted uh, those who, who are, are against them, who threaten them. That's what everyone does. And everyone feels justified doing that. And they always have felt justified doing that, which is why, if you ask me, in my humble opinion, just war theory doesn't accomplish a whole lot, because just war, war theory says you can only go to war when it's justified. Trouble is, everyone's already doing that. Everyone goes, who fights an unjust war? Here, I think I'll go and get killed for an unjust cause. Everyone feels justified in doing this. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's why you go to war. So just war theory basically says, hey, what you're doing, keep on doing it. You know, that's how... Of course, we disagree with justices. My justice conflicts with your justice. So we kill each other over it, and we all feel justified doing it. I, 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 this doesn't accomplish a whole lot. But when we, are, when we resort to violence because we feel justified, we're manifesting that character, that fallen character, the kind of character that's always been out here. We're not manifesting anything distinct at all. It's, you know, sometimes Christians, they, 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 they sort of mix their... Uh, how can I say this nice? Um, they, they, feel, they feel distinct when they are saying, we fight for God and country and justice and truth and righteousness. And they feel like they're doing something distinct in doing that. We stand for the, the, the right things. But see, you couldn't have a slogan that's been more common throughout history. Everyone fights for God and life and truth and justice and righteousness. It's just that we disagree what truth and justice and righteousness is, which is why we go to war over it. There's nothing distinct about that. But when a Jesus follower will say, I will not fight, I will not fight, I will not kill, I will not return evil for evil, I'll return evil for good, I will love unconditionally, I'll love my enemies, I'll bless my enemies, I'll do good to my enemies, even if they're going to kill me. Now that's distinct, and that is beautiful, and that is radical. And that is Christ-like. This is exactly what Jesus does on Calvary. He could have called legions of angels to, to, to his defense, and they would have fought for him, and he would have avoided suffering, and it would have been justified. But Jesus instead lays down his life for his enemies at the hands of his enemies. And that's not just something he did for us. It's something the New Testament says, now you go and do likewise. And it's all over the place in the New Testament. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us while we were yet enemies. So of course that's how we're supposed to respond to enemies. We put on display the character of the Father, that you may be children of the Father Amen. in heaven. So we think this is important stuff. We think this is, 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 uh, is, is, is absolutely central to everything. The church for the first three centuries did this. In fact, this is one of the main reasons why the church grew so fast. Even though it was persecuted, people were being put to death, fed the lions for being a Christian, it still grew at an incredible rate. And we talks about how quick Islam grew, and it did grow fast, but it grew because it conquered people. But the early Christians never conquered anybody. They, they, they were squished by everybody, and yet it grew. It was because they lived in this love, this radical love. Uh, like when a plague would hit a city, everybody would run from the city, including the doctors. But the Christians would run into the city to care for those who were sick. And sometimes they got the plague and died. But it was that witness, that witness, it, 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 people saw that and they said there's something strangely wonderful about these people and some then joined it. Or when they were in, brought into the Colosseum to be fed to lions and stuff, most people would be sneering and jarring and swearing and cursing, but the Christians would just humbly pray for everybody and then they get fed to the lions. And people saw that and they go, whoa, what is with these people? That is our witness. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's how we're set apart. If, and this is so important for Jesus in, in, the, in the Our Father. He says, here's how you should pray. Not exactly these words, but here's the kind of things you should include in a prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed 
means to set apart, to keep distinct, separate from everything else, to shine in the darkness. Uh, we have to keep your name hallowed, and the name has to do with character. Our job is to display a character that is unique, that, that, that contrasts with everything, that's set apart, that's distinctive, and this is one of the crucial elements of it. So the church for the first three centuries lived that way. And then in the fourth century, Constantine allegedly got converted. And like a good pagan would do, he decides to throw a lot of money at, the, at his favorite religion and to legalize his favorite religion and then to share power with his favorite religion. And so he invites the Christians to the, t- to the table to help run the Roman Empire. And now we have our church-state fusion. That has never worked very well. Um, and, and, and the church accepted. You know, three centuries earlier, Jesus got the same offer. Hey, want all this power? But he declined it as a temptation of the devil. Now Christians say, sure, we'll take it. That sounds like a good offer. And uh, now they have to start running to help run the Roman Empire. Trouble is, you can't run an empire unless you're willing to use the sword. You've got to use the sword to keep law and order inside the border and to protect it outside, against enemies outside the border. So now Christians get acclimated to using the sword and they've got to find a way to justify it. So they go to the Bible and start finding ways to justify it. And they start looking at some of the teachings and actions of Jesus. And they find in those things warrants for uh, their own, the violence that they want to do. And that they can motivate people to go out and, and kill for. So we're going to be looking at these throughout this whole series. I will look, I, I, I'm going to look at, at two this year, this morning. First, the uh, temple cleaning, and then this instruction to go buy swords. So, John chapter 2, which is the episode, the version of the temple cleansing that is usually appealed to, uh, to claim that Jesus acted violently. Here he says this, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at, as well as the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, take those, these things out of here. Stop making my house, my father's house, a marketplace. So some say, well, look, at here Jesus, he, he made a whip and he was whipping people. He, he got violent. And that just shows that sometimes it's within God's will for us to resort to violence when it's justified and Jesus was justified here. I submit to you that this episode teaches no such thing, all right? Um, that uh, no violence was... It, Jesus clearly was acting aggressively, but I don't think there's any violence involved in this. Let me make several points. Number one, this wasn't a violent outburst on the part of Jesus. He wasn't... By the way, uh, this is where the, this is the title of this message. I don't know if it's in your bulletin or not, but he wasn't throwing a temple tantrum. <laughs> Trevor Ford thought of that. that was, I thought that was a cute little title. He wasn't throwing a temple t- tantrum. Uh, it, it wasn't a spontaneous outburst of anger. Look at it's not like Jesus walked in the temple and for the first time saw these money changers. They were ripping people off, selling these, these, this, this all sorts of abuse going on here. That's why Jesus is angry. But it's not like he's shocked by this and surprised and throws an outburst of some sort. No, he, he, was, he was in the temple a lot. He knew this stuff was going on. In fact, in, in Luke 22, when they come to arrest him, you know, they have all these swords, and Jesus says, well, you're going to treat me like a bandit? After I've been hanging out with you in the temple every day. So he saw this all the time. It happened this day because that's when Jesus planned on it happening. This was a, this was a calculated thing Jesus was doing. And what he was doing is he, he was engaging what's sometimes called prophetic theater. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God would have the prophets act out a prophecy. And that's what Jesus is doing here. 
Uh, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that the, at some point Yahweh is going to come to his temple and cleanse his temple and judge the corrupt leadership of the temple. And so Jesus, as he's coming here, he, he's, he's, he's putting this on display. He's really saying, I am the one that that passage was talking about. I am Yahweh come to earth. I am Yahweh come to uh, reclaim this temple, to cleanse this temple, and to bring judgment on this temple uh, and on the leadership which happened in 70 AD as the temple was destroyed. In fact, Jesus mentions that specifically in the passages that follow this one. So this was a calculated thing Jesus was doing. He's also intentionally trying to provoke the leadership, provoke the leadership of the church because his plan is to get crucified. And this act set in motion the wheels that eventually led to his crucifixion. So it wasn't a spontaneous thing. It was planned. Second, secondly, yes, Jesus makes a whip. But there's nothing in the passage that suggests that he used that whip violently against people or even animals. He, he made this whip. But the purpose of the whip, John tells us specifically, was to drive out both the sheep and the cattle. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He didn't use that on the money changers because after he drove out the sheep and the cattle, he goes back and talks to the money changers who are still there with their doves and he says, get the doves out of here. And the reason Jesus got that whip was to cause a stampede. He wants to call this animal stampede. It's creating chaos. It's prophetic theater. And the way you create a stampede is throughout history, we find people doing this, is by cracking a whip. You crack the whip, it startles the animals, and they, you drive them out. You don't use the whip on animals. What good would it do to whip one animal when you're trying to drive out a hundred? So you don't use it on any animal. You just crack it, and all the animals run. There's no reason to think that Jesus was involved in any kind of violence here whatsoever. And if he had used this on people, if he actually used a whip and started whipping people, that would have so opened him up to both his opponents and his disciples to say, you hypocrite. You're going around here teaching us to love our enemies, turn the other cheek, never return evil for evil, always return evil for good, you know, don't, don't ever retaliate, all, all that. And now you're using a whip on people? That would have been so hypocritical. They didn't accuse him of that, which is evidence that he didn't use it for that reason. And besides, I don't think the Son of God is ever a hypocrite. All right, so I rest my case on that. John 2, I don't think is, even though that is probably the most appealed to passage, uh, to justify violence. There's nothing violent about it. Then the second passage I want to look at is Luke 22. This one's interesting. I mean, the first one was really boring, but it's, it's going to start to get good here, so just hang with me. Luke 22, listen to this. Now, this, is, this is right when they're um, uh, about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and Jesus says, The one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And Jesus replied, that's enough. The argument is this. What kind of, what kind of pacifist tells his disciples to go sell their cloaks and buy a sword? Clearly, Jesus understood that, that though he's against violence, there are times when it's absolutely necessary where he expects his disciples to use it. I submit to you that this passage does not teach that. It does not warrant uh, that conclusion at all. Uh, several things here. Number one, if Jesus, when he said, go out and buy a sword, if he meant go out and buy a sword and get ready to use it, then again, as with the temple incident, his disciples could have and would have said, wait a second, what about all that love your enemy, turn the other cheek, lay down your life kind of stuff, huh? Now you want us to use a sword. So it, would have, it would have meant Jesus is contradictory, contradicting himself. He's, he's being hypocritical. Number two, if Jesus, in saying go out and buy a sword, meant 
go out and be, be ready to use a sword, then why did he say two is enough? If you're going to take on the temple guard, you're going to need more than two swords. Kind of like, you're going to need a bigger boat. Well, you're going to need more swords. Uh, in fact, two swords apiece for his disciples wouldn't have been enough. If you're going to take on the temple guard, then presumably maybe the Romans, uh, you're going to need a whole lot more than just two swords. But he says, yeah, okay, two, two's enough. Uh, something's going on here, folks. Uh, whatever Jesus, whatever he's getting at when he says go buy some swords, it seems pretty clear he doesn't intend them to use it. And number three, and this is probably the clearest proof of this, look what happens when one of them tries to use it. Uh, Jesus isn't happy about it. So they, uh, the, the temple guard comes to the garden and Judas kisses Jesus to say, here's the guy that you want. And then it, we, we read this. When those who were around him, his disciples, saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And Jesus said, swing away. <laughs> no. Before Jesus could even answer, one of them, and this turns out we've learned in John, it was Peter. And this is so typical of Peter. Peter it was always act now, think later. Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Okay, so here they're coming to get uh, Jesus and his disciples say, should we swing our swords? And Jesus was about to go, uh, but Peter, to Peter the answer was obvious. Obviously, we should start swinging our sword. And so he starts swinging his sword and cuts off a, a guy's ear. And Jesus then rebukes him. No more of this. And in the Matthew version, uh, he adds, um, put that sword back in your sheath, back in its place. It belongs, in, in, not out swinging at people, but in the sheath. And then he says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. It's that whole cycle of violence. You kill, and then you're killed. And it just goes on and on and on. Jesus says, no more of this. He rebukes Peter. And notice this. If ever, ever in the history of earth there ever was an, a justified use of violence, this was it. This is the one person on the planet who was guilty of nothing. He's being unjustly arrested by this corrupt temple guard. This, this was a, by anyone's books, this was a justified use of violence. And yet Jesus rebukes Peter for doing it. And he says, no more of this, which shows you that he wasn't just talking about this particular incident. He's saying no more of this kind of thing. No, it stops here. This, this history of you kill my son, so I kill three of your sons, so you kill my whole family, so then I kill your, all your relatives, and then you... The cycle of violence that the humanity has gone on for, since the dawn of history, round and round and round, the merry-go-round we go, and we keep on thinking that if we only kill a few more, well, then we make the world a better place. Jesus says it stops here. No more of this. Have you not noticed... Brilliant humans, in the, history of the, the, in the history of the human race, have you not noticed that when you live by the sword, you die by the sword? You get power by the sword, but then you lose power by someone else's sword. It goes around and around and around and around and around. Jesus says it stops here. It stops here. Um, uh, and for his disciples, he's saying, we, we don't do warfare the way the world does warfare. Well, there's a kind of warfare we're involved in. Here's what it looks like. And he heals the guy's ear. In the kingdom, we don't do warfare by cutting off people's ears. We do it by healing their ears or the nose, or whatever it was that we cut off. Um, Paul says it like this. Our battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's never against flesh and blood. It's never against humans. It's rather against the principalities and powers and rulers and dominions and authorities. And the way that we fight the powers and rulers and dominions and authorities is by refusing to fight flesh and blood. 
by refusing to ever do anything other than love flesh and blood, whatever that flesh and blood looks like, we're going to love them, and that's how we wage war against the powers. That's the kind of battle Jesus fought with his unconditional love, and that's the kind of battle we're, we are called to fight with our unconditional love. And so when he says, go out, and buy the sword, go out and buy two swords, it's clear he doesn't intend them to use it. So why does he tell them to do that? Well, the answer is right in the verse. Um, you don't need to guess at this. The one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, here's why, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Now he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. It's, it's right here. The reason why Jesus is going by swords is because there's this prophecy that says that the Messiah is going to be considered one of the lawless ones or uh, a, a threat to the state or an insurrectionist. Um, and that, in fact, that's, why he, that's what justifies his arrest. And so Jesus is saying, I, 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 to, to fulfill the scripture, we need to appear to look like to be counted as uh, insurrectionist, as a threat. So go and get some swords. And they say, well, we got two. He goes, okay, that, that'll be enough. The temple guard, well, see, if they come and Jesus isn't carrying a weapon and no one's carrying a weapon, what kind of a threat is that? They're not, they wouldn't be justified arresting him. I mean, he was tried and convicted as a, as a threat to the state. And so he's got to look like a threat to the state. So you need at least two swords to do that. That's why Jesus said, go out and buy the swords. But he never intended them to use it, as all of his other teachings make clear, as this passage itself makes clear. So this passage just does not provide any warrant for thinking that it's ever God's will for us to set aside Jesus' unqualified command to love enemies uh, and to resort to violence the way the world does. In fact, in my humble opinion, uh, the fact that this verse is often used to justify violence, I think shows you how desperate the position is. They have to go to this extent to try to find some foundation for it. But there's no foundation for it here whatsoever. So now I want to do something completely different. Uh, this series, we don't want to be just about like an intellectual exercise, although I think it's real helpful to kind of know these answers because if you're living this out and sharing this with people, you will get pushback on it. So it's good on an intellectual level, but we don't want to just have, we're not here to like just stimulate neurons, though we like to do that too. But here's the thing. It's really necessary for us, I think, to point out the error of this kind of thinking where we're trying to justify violence by going to the New Testament. But as we do this, it's going to be so important that we don't feel self-righteous about it. We're the people who don't believe in violence, as opposed to those nasty Christians. Um, it's so easy. We can get self-righteous about everything. An anti-Pharisee Pharisee. Um, we're not like those nasty Pharisees, and we just prove that we are by saying that. Um, here's the thing, folks. We all justify violence. We, we, we're all guilty of this. Uh, and so what we want to be doing in a series is to help us get it at, at the various ways that we do the very thing we're critiquing here. We don't maybe go to the Bible to try to justify it, but we justify it in other ways. In fact, we're so good at justifying it, we often don't even notice that we've got violence. Remember, violence isn't, first and foremost, something we do with our bodies. It's, it's primarily something we do in our heart and our mind. We only do it with our bodies because it's first in our heart and mind. So the question is, is how are we violent uh, in our hearts and in our minds? Um, remember, Jesus said this. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the... Take this teaching seriously and it will change the way you frame everything. If you, he says, uh, where, where is it here? Uh, oh, you've heard that it was said to those in ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with your brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. 
uses the same phrase. It's just as severe. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council, which is another way of saying liable to the judgment. And if you say you fool, or some other derogatory term, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Hello! Hello! Don't go feeling righteous because you don't murder like those nasty murderers out there. Jesus says you're in the same boat. And he applies it to other sins as well, lust and, and whatever. There's no... What he's doing, among other things, is he's lopping off any kind of self-righteousness at the knees right here. Um, so the question we've got to ask is, what's going on in our hearts and what's going on in our minds? Um, to live in perfect love. And Jesus says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in that passage, what he's referring to there is the, the, the love of God. And the word perfect there, teleos, it means uh, to be full or complete. He wants us to be completely loving, which means that there's nothing but love in us which is why our love is indiscriminate like our Father's love is. Um, and so to do that, to live in love, means that, that we, we, we have to make it our aspiration to have love, the love of God, the love that defines God, permeate all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, as well as all of our actions, which means we need to be intentional and persistent on rooting out everything in our hearts and in our attitudes that's inconsistent with that love rooting out all derogatory judgments, all anti-other sentiments. It's okay to be against ideas, and it's okay to not, not, not approve of actions, but when it comes to people, our job is to, as I often teach around here, is to agree with God that every person has unsurpassable worth, and therefore to root out of our hearts and minds everything that's inconsistent with that, everything that detracts worth from anybody, uh, anything that violates them. That's the origin of all violence. To be going after this and, and, and purging our hearts and minds. And that may seem impossible to, get, to have nothing but love in our hearts and minds and to purge out all negativity, all judgments. That may seem impossible. But you know, if, if, if we were on our own, it would be impossible. But thank God we're not on our own. Amen. We're filled with the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. And, 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 and with God, someone once said that with God, all things are possible. All right? Uh, and, and so we are to then be yielded to the Spirit and be seeking to do this. This is what Paul means when he says, bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of perfect love. To bring every thought captive to that is to bring captive to that perfect love. And, and we should do this, like make this our, our heart's aspiration, a daily challenge to live in love, thought, word, and deed. We should do that not just because Jesus commands it and Paul commands it, though that is reason enough to do it, we should do this because, folks, this is the path to freedom. This is the path to entering into God's joy and God's love and God's peace. What, you know, Jesus says you've got a wellspring of living water inside of you, John 7, right? And it's, it's welling up inside of you. And it's, it, so God's love, God's joy, God's peace, all of that is inside of you already, welling up, wanting to be expressed. But you know what corks it? What corks it is all the brain pollution and heart pollution that we absorb and we hang on to. The resentment, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the hatred, the animosity, the self-righteousness, all of that, it just pollutes it and corks it. And when you start to get rid of that stuff, now the wellspring can start to be expressed. And you're going to be walking in a different place. If you're intentional about putting aside all that's not, as Paul says in Philippians 4, lovely and true and pure and, and good and noble, put aside all of that, then God's love and joy and peace begins to be more and more expressed. I, I 14 years ago, finally got so disgusted with the cyclical violence of this world, I, I just said, I want nothing ever, ever to do with any of that. 
And I made a vow that I'm going to live my life trying to purge my heart and mind and actions of every vestige of violence. To affirm the worth of not only just people, but, but of everything. I, I, I there took on this, this commitment that if I didn't create it, I'm not allowed to destroy it. Um, if at all possible. Uh, centipedes and mosquitoes being the exception. But, but uh, <laughs> even there, I'll try to... But, 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 I, I, and, and, and so all the, all the judgments, all of that, all the animosity, all the negative... And I didn't even know I had so much garbage there until I started trying to get rid of it. It's like, whoa! Man, so much brain pollution. It's automatic. We don't even know how we think. We just do it automatically. But to start doing that, and I'm telling you, I'm not going to tell you it's easy. Even though the Spirit of God is empowering you to do it, it's not easy. And I'm not saying I'm always consistent with it. But I'll tell you, the difference it makes has been beautiful. Um, man, you just see things differently. You know, we, we, we look at the world through the lens of our brain. And so to, to the degree that our brain is polluted, we're looking at a polluted world. Maybe the reason you think the world is so ugly, and there is a lot of ugliness in the world, but maybe the reason it looks so ugly is because your brain is ugly. It looks dark because your brain is dark. But you can, if you start getting rid of that, man, you start seeing the beauty of things that you didn't see before. Uh, noticing things and, and, and of, of people. And, and, and you know what? And it feels so good because all of that anti-other sentiment, all, anti, all the judgments, they suck life out of you. They suck energy out of you. It, 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 it's hard to be the judge of the world, walking around as judge. Man, that's a heavy burden to carry. You get rid of that and just feel free to start loving people and ascribing worth to them. And there's a freedom that comes with that. Uh, and there's a joy that comes with that. And there's a peace that comes with it. The, you folks, there's a reason why Jesus said, be perfect. Make this, the cri- make this the goal, to be complete in love as your Father's complete. Because that's, that, that, that's the way to freedom. So, here's what we're going to do in the next six minutes. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I, I'm going to give us an exercise that will help us begin to just become aware of our brain pollution and kind of what's behind the brain pollution. So right now, I want you to think about a, a conflict that you had recently. Or maybe if a while back there was an even bigger conflict, but one that, you can remember that, but think about that, that conflict. And, and, and it's one that where you didn't necessarily handle yourself as Christ-like as you could have. Or maybe you, you look Christ-like, but in your brain you weren't being Christ-like. Okay, just think about that. And as you think about that, let's watch this uh, two-minute video.
just think, I just think that's brilliant. Uh, we, we've got a, a, an incredible creative team. You give them a concept and they come up with this. How do they come up with stuff like that? So in a conflict situation, maybe you got big or maybe you got small or maybe you got vicious or, you know, whatever. But what that, what that video is showing is that behind that, there's something, there's a woundedness. There's a, a fear, insecurity. You feel betrayed. You feel insignificant or whatever. And so we want to get in touch with the, the, both the way we respond and then the feeling that, that motivates that because that's how we get empowered then to begin to wake up to it and set it aside. So right now, you have in your bulletins, a, first of all, if you're on the right side of your aisle, beneath you there's some pencils. Would you pass those down the aisle so people will have something to write on? And this is just a real quick little exercise to help begin to get us in touch with this stuff. On the first side, of the, there's an insert in your bulletin. And it has a list of all these kind of feelings. There's both sides. And there's one question, question number one on one side and question number two on the other side. Question number one is simply this. As you think about that recent conflict that you had, circle the items below that best match how you felt about yourself deep inside during this conflict. Holy Spirit, help us to be self-aware here. And if you circle more than like three, you might want to star the one or two that are the most important, you think, or the most dominant there. Okay, then on the other side of that paper is a circle of the items below that best describe how you responded or acted during that conflict. Okay, so what did you do here? And again, if you have more than three, just star the one or two that seem to be the, the most uh, prevalent. Now to close it off, I'd like to have five of you come up here and share what your things were. Only kidding. Um, so he, I want to ask you to keep this list here. Wasn't that funny? Uh, and 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 uh, um, pray over this, okay? And you're connecting the dots here, okay? That here's how you felt, and then because of that, you acted in a certain way. And see, if we're going to purge all this out of our life, we got to become aware of this. And then I, I encourage you just to submit that to, to God. Um, ask God to begin a healing process so you don't need to act this way. You don't need to feel this way. Uh, ask God to give you wisdom about how to reframe things. Um, and just invite Jesus in on this, okay? And we'll be saying more about this as the series goes on. But right now, this is about becoming aware and inviting Jesus on the inside 
Because folks, we want to live in love as Christ loved us. We want to be perfect and complete in love as the Father is in love. And that means ridding our mind of, and hearts of everything that is contrary to love. Amen? Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here uh, and be by the stairs. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, uh, whether it's about this topic or something totally unrelated, it's fine. Uh, these folks would love to pray with you, all right, and minister to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, but there's something maybe pulling at your heart and mind saying you should consider that, I'd like you to come up here and talk to these folks and they'll explain what that's all about and uh, help you get started in that if that's what you want to do. Folks, as we, oh, and don't forget the baptism uh, starts, or the picnic starts at 1245. You can pick up directions out in the gathering area, and then the baptism will start at 2 o'clock. If you can make that, I encourage you to do so. As we leave here, can we do it as a people who are committed to cultivating that love of God in our life towards all people at all times and all situations? No ifs, and buts, maybes, exception clauses, take backs, do overs, or anything like that. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love on your neighbors. God bless. See you later.